0: Hello, Tightropers. At the end of this episode, we discovered from David Osler that he will be at Benchmark Books this Wednesday, September 18th, from 5.30 p.m. to 8 p.m., uh, selling copies of the book, Bridges, and and signing them as well. So if you'd like to head over to Benchmark Books, it's on 3269 Main Street, Suite 250. You can head over that way between 5.30 and 8, and you will see... David Osler signing his book, Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question, which is what you are about to hear uh, this podcast uh, center around. We're excited uh, for David to be in town, so we're actually going to be uh, having a little giveaway, and we talk about it a little bit later. But if you would like to possibly receive one of five signed copies of the book, courtesy of Marriage on a Tightrope, head over to our Facebook group and you'll see a thread there where you can throw your name down or just say, I want one, please. And we're going to give away uh, five books at random to people that do that. Or you can email us at Marriage on a Tightrope as well, and we'll enter you into that as well. We'll pick the winners for that before Wednesday so that David could sign your your book um, personally right there uh, at the bookstore. Thanks so much, and enjoy this episode with David Osler. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. This is Alan. And this is Katie, and we're still married. We have a special treat for everyone today. Uh, We're not alone. We are joined by philanthropist, author, media magnate. Uh, I'm just kidding. We'll let him speak for himself, but we're very, very honored and very excited to have David Osler on the podcast. David, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks, Katie and Alan.
0: It's good to be here. David and I, um, you and I connected. I don't even remember which group it was in, but we ran across each other in one of the little Facebook groups we're in, and we we talked a number of months ago. And you, you told us about your book, Bridges, that was coming out. And I thought, hey, that's kind of cool. I wonder, we'll see, we'll see if it can <laughs> if it can scratch the itch of how it's going to end up. But you'll hear Katie and I. We both have read uh, read the book, and and um, you'll hear our thoughts. But we're, we want to hear. A little bit about your background and we're just so excited to to dig into not just the book but also get to know you a little bit
1: well thanks I I actually think I'm kind of boring so when you kind of put all these superlatives out there I kind of <laughs> look over my shoulder to see who else is joining the show <laughs>
0: right we're going I'll I'll we'll set you up for um a bunch of high points of, hey, I, I, listeners, when, when David gets into that one story from his 20s, oh my gosh, you guys, it's such a, You got to You got to come up with something. I don't know.
1: Well, I'm kind of old enough that I don't really remember my 20s. <laughs> well, then that means it was a really fun decade. <laughs> well, you know, Alan and Katie, I'm, I'm a pretty traditional Latter-day Saint. I, I grew up in Salt Lake City and did kind of all the basic youth issues, or youth activities in the church. I, I I was in a ward where it was an Eagle Scout mill, and somehow or other I got my Eagle Scout without really doing anything other than showing up. Um, <laughs> and and so much of my youth was that way, you know, just normal, uh, going to seminary. Um, uh, going on a mission, uh, I went to Southern Japan on my mission. It was wonderful, it was hard. it was you know taught me a love of a people that I really didn 't know up until then. Um, came back home and um, uh, started dating. Um, I did some dating before my mission, but um, met a wonderful woman her Her name 's Rochelle, and we married um, maybe about a year and a half after i I uh, came back from my mission. Um, And we've had a wonderful life together. Uh, I finished up a degree at the University of Utah, and then my wife and I moved um, out of state. We moved to New Hampshire, and Mm -hmm. I went to Dartmouth College uh, for an MBA. And we really raised our family in the New England area, a little bit in Boston, but mainly up in New Hampshire. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And we've got six wonderful children. We raised two foster kids uh, that are also wonderful um and uh you know kind of settled into life in a normal way got a job and uh the the area that i studied was at least undergraduate was um an area called epidemiology um which is really the use of data in healthcare and uh crafted a career in uh using data to uh find better ways to deliver healthcare whether it's the actual clinical care or the business processes associated with healthcare and uh, developed um, really a 30 year career in there, which I retired from about, I guess, about eight or so years ago. Um, you know, in my business, um, uh, we moved around a bit. We did uh, raise our family in New Hampshire, but we also lived in Salt Lake uh, for a brief period of time in Minnesota. And then uh, I retired when I was working in London. So, you know, that's kind of the personal side. We have we live now in Washington, D.C. Five of our children live nearby. It seems like five of the children actually live with us at times um, <laughs> while we're here. And, you know, our youngest is 26, so we, we don't have small kids anymore, but we have have big kids and, you know, Grand it's fun. Kids. Yeah, we just blessed... Um, uh, my granddaughter, Emma today.
2: Oh, wow. Congrats.
1: Um, she, she's our sixth grandchild and, um, and she's just a doll, um, just, uh, about six weeks old now. So it's really fun to, to be with the grandkids more. And since I don't work, I get to see them a bit.
0: Yeah. yeah. What else do you like to do when the, you know, you've been, you see, you mentioned you've been retired for eight years or so. What do you like to do in all that free time? <laughs>
2: Quotation marks, Ellen, did the free time, right.
0: right? I'm sure you keep well, plenty busy.
1: You know, after we retired in London, when, when I was in London, I, I worked hard. And so I wasn't home all the time. Um, I was developing international businesses in Europe and in Asia. So I did a bit of travel. My wife uh, didn't mind that because London is a beautiful place to be a tourist in. Yeah. She went everywhere. And just had a great time, but I wasn't with her all that time. So after we retired, um, we signed up to go to India to work for a humanitarian organization. And it's just volunteer work, but we lived in southern India for about a year um, helping um, those that are affected with leprosy. And, you know, had a grand time. We certainly did some vacations while we were there to exotic places, but it was fun doing something shoulder-to-shoulder with Rochelle. Instead of so much of what you know, we would do is kind of do our separate uh, things within a marriage. Yeah. But um, you know, I'd work; um, she'd uh, make sure um, our children were fed and clothed. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, together we 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 made it work. But it was nice being just together, the two of us, um, and doing those kinds of things. Uh, when we were living in India, we got a call to to serve as mission president and wife of uh, Sierra Leone. Uh, I guess it's the free t- Sierra Leone Freetown Mission, which mm-hmm. is in Western Africa. And uh, we went there, and um, that was really a, an amazing experience in so many ways. And um, uh, in a way that we didn't even see in India, we saw poverty and challenges and, you know, very, very humbling to live there. Um, you certainly get a sense of what first-world problems are and what third-world problems are. Mm-hmm. And we were there until uh, Ebola came. And Mm -hmm. uh, if you remember right, back um, in 2014, there was a big epidemic in West Africa. We ended up having to close our mission and transferred all of our missionaries to different places, and my wife and I came home. Wow. Wow. and then we were called to go to the Hilcomora uh, Visitor Center, and I was called as the director there. And we supervised the missionaries in the historic sites uh, the Joseph Smith Farm, uh, the Whitmer Farm, uh, the Grandin Building, and the Hilcomora itself and uh, served there. So we've found ways to be busy. Um, and uh, now we're really immersed in the lives of our kids and our grandkids.
2: You need to give yourself a little more credit because you said you're boring and here you've traveled (laughs) all over the world and doing some, sounds like some pretty amazing work with other people and that's fantastic.
1: Well, we've always had a real sense of adventure um, in our marriage and in our family and wanted to do fun things. To me, it's kind of commonplace because that's what we've always done, but I know a lot of people haven't kind of had that experience and we do feel grateful to, to have it and you know, it really does change your, your worldview when you see uh, a billion people living in India and in poverty and and uh, in Sierra Leone where you can't talk about fast um, fasting at church uh, of going without two meals because that would be Monday's meal and Tuesday's meal. Right. Um, you know, in a place where people only eat, eat one meal a day and where one out of 12 children die before the age of five. And so, you know, it's pretty humbling to to see those places and, and to know you really um, can have very limited impact. You know, you can't fix it. Um, yeah. You can um, work with people and develop friendships and, and do some modest amount of help. But in reality, these are, you know, broad intractable problems and they're humbling to, to see. And, sobering to know uh, how many people live in those sorts of uh, conditions
0: yeah well <laughs> the main topic of this podcast now makes me feel like a little brat <laughs> because <I>, like <laughs> well the biggest problem we're dealing with is a is a crisis of faith and which i don't want to minimize a lot of our listeners obviously are listening because it's been very hard for them but it certainly is good to keep in keep in mind and be reminded of the fact that We're very blessed and lucky to have what we do have, and given the given the problems that we could have, this isn't uh, the worst one that we could try to get past. So, thanks for bringing perspective to the podcast.
1: Well, you know, I've learned that everyone's problems are really real to them, and it'd be wrong to kind of judge, you know, someone's problems as not being meaningful just because you know it doesn't go with, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah you know they're they're real to us and and we feel them and they're important and um and we can have compassion even if they're first world problems for sure
2: so um my first question to you um why why did you feel the need to write the book do you want to talk a little bit about that
0: and as you answer that we'll we'll say to the <clears throat> to the listener. It'll be in the, the show title, but the the full name of the book is Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question. We're calling it Bridges for short, but that is the full title of the book. So yeah, what what brought about the book?
1: Yeah, so my wife and I got a calling in our stake um, to work with our leadership to try and understand, um, or to really reach out to the uh, the single members of our stake that don't attend church. And um, in our area, we have a single adult stake. So pretty much all of the young singles that are active would go outside of our stake. So we're really left with those young single adults that don't attend at all Mm -hmm. and those that are older um, that uh, both attend and don't attend. And in our stake, we have about a thousand singles and about 800 of them don't attend. And um, we're not in a stake without leadership. We have good leadership in all our wards, so it's not like there's not um, ministering brothers and sisters to reach out to these people. And we kind of felt like our calling was less to go out and try and knock on the doors of 800 people, but it was to systematically understand what's in the minds of the 800 people where they once chose to be baptized, either as eight-year-olds or uh, older, um, but they no longer feel that they want to or can or are able to attend church. And many of them don't even feel really like they're church members. So as we started doing that work, um, we came to understand that that not all leaders or parents or just friends and relationships – understand some of the issues uh, about today that cause people to disaffiliate uh, or cause them to not attend. And so um, part of our calling was to help our stake um, leaders and our ward leaders understand those issues. And it kind of became apparent that there's really not good material out there um, to systematically explain to believing members why someone could have a faith crisis or could struggle with belief or could um, uh, choose to say for, for the purposes that are important to me, I choose not to attend. And um, as we kind of compiled that, it became apparent that it could be put together in something that could be more useful um, in a broader sense than our stake. So, so I started writing the book about a year ago. Mm. and felt like it was something that really needed to be um, brought uh, uh, to members of the church.
2: Did you receive any pushback when you when you started to do things in an unorthodox way, you know, sending out... In your book, you talk about how you send out letters asking the young adults why they left. And do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so we wrote a letter... Um, and send it out to all the non-attending. We we were able to get um, uh, the bishops in each of the wards to identify from the list of people we were working with or trying to reach which ones attend and which ones don't attend. And so we wrote a letter. The The bishops were comfortable with the letter. And it basically said, we're the Ostlers. Um, we have been called to understand why uh, people don't attend. Um, we would like you to respond in any way you feel comfortable to help us understand that. We're not here to try and get you to come back to church. That wasn't the purpose of the letter. So we, we gave them a survey link. We gave them phone numbers. We gave them email. We um, set up a focus group that they could come to at particular times and, and tell us um, what you know were the issues. We got some very tender emails back. Um, I, I remember one woman said, "Thank you for what you're doing, but I'm just not ready to tell you. You know, I just I hurt too much and can't kind of express the reasons why I'm not attending." Mm-hmm. Um, we had some that responded to our survey. Um, it it wasn't the survey that I included in the book, but it was a survey that some responded to. Some wrote some very poignant comments. Um, and some of those I actually do use in the book. Um, and, and it was interesting. Um, uh, the letter ended up in, um, a Reddit Exmo thread. <laughs> mm. And so they started bombarding, uh, you know, readers of it started bombarding my, um, my survey monkey. So we started getting all sorts of interesting responses. <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> uh, you can always count on ex-Mormon subreddits. So. <laughs> Blow it out to color things up a
1: little bit. Well, you know, I, I actually spent some time on it um, as I was going through the book because you know there's really strong opinions there, and if, if 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 we really want to understand the issue, you have to really understand the strong opinions, don't you? And so, you know, um, I, I was appreciative of that. It it didn't help my survey any, but it did help me understand kind of the poignant issues. Yeah. And and from that, as as we introduce that information to our leaders. Uh, we, we realized that we needed to be maybe more systematic in terms of, of data that we could collect that would help our leaders understand that that the traditional belief of why people disaffiliate um, is not robust. Um, uh, and so we, we created two surveys, or at, at this point I'm kind of doing this on my own outside of the church calling, but uh, we did a survey and got 520 responses from uh, active ward and state leaders. Mm, uh, yeah. And we asked, I asked them maybe 70 questions uh, and they responded to me about, you know, why do people disaffiliate? What are the big reasons? Um, uh, and the like. And then I also ran a similar survey in a, in a, in what's called a snowball setting where uh, people who, um, uh, identifying uh, as being in a faith crisis could answer many of the same questions and some others. And I tried to match them up. So, you know, a leader would say, um, I'd ask the leader, what are the reasons why people leave? And, and many of them would say it's because they're sinning or because they've been offended or they're lazy or some of those narratives. And then i go to the faith crisis people and say, you know, what are the reasons? And, and the reasons would be completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Can,
0: can you talk about the, well, I mean, you just did, I'll, I'll tell you a little something. Um, before, during, in the middle of my crisis, uh, I was in the elders quorum presidency and nobody in the ward knew outside of the bishop. Uh, and then one member of the stake presidency knew, um, about uh, everything I was going through and all the struggles I had, it, the last it was the last lesson I was to teach as an elders quorum, uh, as an elders quorum presidency member, and I asked the question. Uh, in fact, I worked with the stake presidency member to uh, get my my lesson a- approved. I wanted to talk about why people leave the church. That was the entire lesson, and I asked the question. That's how I started it. The entire lesson was raising having everybody, um, open it up for discussion on why do you think people leave the church? And about 20 to 25 people in the room. And it was all the, the response was what you mentioned that the leader said it was, uh, well, I have this friend and, and he just wanted to, wanted to drink. So he stopped attending, uh, my friend never really had a testimony in the first place. So he, once things got hard, he stopped attending. Um, he doesn't want to come to church on Sundays anymore cause he's, his work's busy. So he stopped attending. It was always something and it was, it was difficult. And then I, I had in inter- I had asked three or four people, uh, from work that I knew had, had left the church to give me a three to four sentence explanation of why they stopped attending. And then I just read those and sure enough, they didn't have anything to do with any of the reasons that that the the class had had put forward. One question I wanted to ask you that I've actually thought about is: Is it fair? Um, someone that has left would, wouldn't they not self-identify as lazy or disobedient? I'm trying to. I'm not being cynical towards my own side of the fence, but. If I'm asked the question, did you, did you leave? Cause you're lazy. Well, no, of course not. I didn't leave cause I'm lazy. What, from a data perspective, how much of a kind of a self-reporting bias is there in the data?
1: Well, you know, there's probably a lot and, um, and the, and the data isn't, I can't create some sort of statistically valid set of data here. Right. So the data is really kind of directionally interesting. Yeah. Um, but, um, it, you know, it doesn't definitively say the X number, X percent with a confidence interval of 5%. Um, right, right. And you certainly have all the, that same level of bias that is there. Um, but but um, as a part of this, I, I uh, interviewed about 50 people who had been through a faith crisis. And I actually created a faith crisis focus group of 85 people. And I could just ask questions of them, um, and did the interviews with these 50 people that were in a faith crisis, and some had left, so they're not in a faith crisis anymore. And, and I just asked them these questions, and I had them tell me their stories. And um, everyone's individual, right? There isn't, you know, um, a single answer out there. And so there are some that, you know, are just tired and, and, right? yeah. and lazy. But but there's some that really struggle, and um, they've, they've struggled with doctrinal or uh, behavioral or historical issues within the church, um, and and they create an immense amount of dissonance with them. Uh, it's very painful. Um, they're it, it kind of completely shatters their worldview, uh, and and as you know, relationships uh, in a marriage or with other family members, um, and the the level of. Uh, intense emotions that I was feeling from these interviews uh, caused me to, to really legitimize the data that I had collected. Um, sure. Some might be lazy. Heck, um, I'm a member of the church and I'm a believing and I'm lazy. <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's not that simple. And, and even elder Uchdorf says, you know, why would someone leave the church? I'm going to paraphrase this. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's not that simple. Some people struggle for years with it and make hard decisions on this. So, but but the reason why I think it's important to kind of talk about this is that if we really don't understand um, why someone uh, has a faith crisis or disaffiliates or has to reconstruct their faith, if, if we don't understand that, then we can never minister to them. Mm-hmm. What I mean by minister to them is understand them and be compassionate and build a relationship. Um, uh, and and if we just use kind of trite generalizations, which sometimes might be true, but usually aren't, then um, we actually create more misunderstanding and more um, pain and difficulty. Um, you've read the book. And so you probably recall the story about Mike Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, I tell about Mike and Mike's in his thirties and is just having a faith crisis and he goes for a year without telling his wife and, um, he feels completely alone. He's, he's praying, he's fasting, he's doing everything that he can, perhaps in a, even in a hyper intense way, uh, to try and kind of work through this in some sort of faithful way. And, you know, the guy's just alone. Um. And there's a, a term that is often used in in faith crisis uh, called the dark night of the soul. And mm-hmm. you know, Mike's night is completely dark, and he's completely alone. And you know, which you just feel for him in that, and you you know, you get emotional about it because you know he's suffering and suffering alone. And we we don't want anyone to to suffer, let alone to suffer uh, alone and isolated and fearful.
2: Um, as you are collecting data and you're talking to these people with these super tender stories, um, and you're collecting data from the, from leaders of the church. Um, I mean, just from what you presented at the beginning of the book, I could see like the huge disconnect between the two, which really made me sad. So, um, you know, all of the leaders said that they would welcome and would want Um, better training on how to talk about these issues, how to help people in their neighborhood or ward or whatever it might be to, um, you know, just to show empathy and love to them. So, I mean, certainly your book um, does it and it's a a great help, but um, how do you feel like the church can help those leaders um, help those in their congregations?
1: Well, you know, one thing that I found really encouraging on this is that leaders universally recognize that this is a challenge. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I ask them that, is it a problem um, in your ward? Are you concerned about it in your family? And the answers are yes and double yes.
2: Mm -hmm. I
1: I ask even about the prevalence um, of faith crisis with this group of leaders, and almost all of them have either a family member uh, a child or a close friend um, who uh, has had a faith crisis. Um, so it, it's just a characteristic of our day, and um, and I think we'll eventually kind of get caught up with um, kind of the, the 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 training and and the ministerial approaches um, for responding to people with faith crisis. But but I have to go back to my own church service. I was both a bishop and a state president, and and you know so much of those callings is based on the experience that you've already had i mean there's a handbook but the handbook isn't you know it trains on some things but it doesn't train on so many things mm-hmm. and so you're you're really relying upon your experience and um your earnestness in terms of trying to look at a problem and engage the lord in the answers um but for something that um uh, is so different today than it was even 20 years ago. Um, Many leaders uh, just don't have a lot of experience in terms of approaching this. And so they don't know how to train their bishops or their Relief Society presidents or the members of the quorum or the members of the Relief Society to to respond. And, you know, parents uh, may not know themselves about the issues uh, that can trigger a faith crisis. And so it's hard for them to teach their kids. Mm. So I I think we're kind of in this um, in-between stage where these issues um, are prevalent in the church and um, we're trying different things and uh, we're doing the best. And as we do that, we'll get better and better about it. Um, But, um, you know, I, I don't know what the church um, is, generally is is kind of approaching this and what kind of training if any they're providing to to stakes and wards Uh, the stake and ward leaders that that I surveyed weren't feeling like they were getting much yeah they they didn't feel very capable to address the issues when when I asked them those questions
2: Mm.
1: well something
0: you just said you, you you mentioned and of course neither none of us would know generally how they're how the church um, at a high level is going to address some of these issues. Right. Um, you know, I, I look at how the, the gospel topics essays, for example, were rolled out in a way that was like it. it if you listen to how elder snow says that, that uh, their strategy behind rolling them out of the church wants to be the author of their own history and they want to put it out there. But, uh, and of course I'm talking just about one of the issues um, history being that that issue but they wanted to be the author of that but not necessarily throw it in someone's face that doesn't need to be thrust into something that could cause a crisis themselves so i think what you mentioned is is striking because it's it almost feels like the church doesn't quite Doesn't quite. They have to balance between being being open and transparent and and not pushing people into a crisis where it wouldn't have come anyway if if they wouldn't have been the author of that. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, I mean, I think I I have great sympathy for the complexity of their callings when they respond to this, and you know, then you add to it the worldwide nature of the church, and you know, what they say and do um, has to fit India. Sierra Leone, right. the United States, you know, and places I've not traveled and not lived and experienced. So so they do have a hard um, challenge on that. Um, the only, you know, I, I thought that uh, President Ballard's remarks in February of 2016 to CES instructors was really um, a very important talk where he talked about how, Uh, CES instructors need to know the essays like the back of their hand Mm -hmm. um, and even implied that families need to do that. Uh, I think he said that the CES instructors are kind of the second line defense after families on this, which means that uh, parents need to know these issues um, because their children will face them. Um, uh, You know, at least if they're living in a a first world kind of country and setting. Um, So I, I don't know how that percolates out. I I asked the the church leaders how familiar they were with the essays, um, and a surprising number have never heard of them.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I asked my elders quorum that same question, and, and two hands in the room went up—me yeah. and the stake presidency member that I had asked to be there.
1: <laughs> because you had told him about him probably before the meeting. Well, I think he knew
0: about him. He actually—that's yeah. why I opened up to him because he gave a talk in in a. Um, state conference that showed me that he knew he knew the issues. So I actually ran up to him after that was the first leader I talked to. I ran up to him after the conference and said, I need 30 minutes. I'm so sorry. Apologize to your wife. Can, can you talk to me right now? I mean, I was in the depths of crisis and, uh-huh. and he did. And so he was an ear for me for, for a number of months. And then, okay. uh, yeah, so that I, I, it's funny because I think a lot of what What is striking to me in the book, and hopefully those that are listening to this podcast that are uh, the ones that have experienced or are currently experiencing a crisis, is the book spoke very true to my own experience, um, e- even to the point of echoing a lesson that I taught two years ago in Elder's Quorum. So uh, if, if you are on uh, the, uh, David, you may, I don't know if, you'll like the way that we talk about, we don't like to label, but I just, for brief, for brevity, I, I say on um, if you're on the non-believing side, and I know that just because you don't believe in some of the truth claims anymore, you still believe in something. But if you're the one going through crisis, don't be uh, afraid of this book or feel like it's going to be triggering. It absolutely isn't. It's beautiful.
2: Can I say, um, I think I really like, um, David, what you said about like families knowing about the gospel topics essay, because in my position where Alan has learned a lot of this information and he comes to me and says, I want here, I want you to read this. It's scary for me, especially because I don't know what, what he's about to present to me. I don't want my own view to change the ideas I have about the church. I don't really want them change." and um i think reading this book gave me more confidence like uh, like it gave me a little bit of push in a positive direction that no, I should be reading the gospel topics essays, and I should know about them. And, and that's a really hard thing um, when my spouse has already read them and is wanting me to pushing me to read them. And um, a lot of our listeners are in that same boat where their spouses have have gone through this crisis. They want to share, and I know it, Alan kept saying but Katie, it's on LDS.org. And and I would say, but yeah, I'm not, I'm just like not there. I'm not ready yet. Do you have any advice for, for those spouses out there who are in that position, haven't read it yet, and are feeling really, um, you know, really worried about what they'll read?
1: Well, I mean, I think everyone kind of has to take that stuff at their own pace. And, um, you know, I think A generation or two from now, the gospel topic essays will be something that we don't even think about because, you know, we have talked about them and we know about them. And so they're part of our fabric. Um, You know, it seems crazy um, that uh, an angel would bring gold plates, but that doesn't seem crazy to us because we've kind of grew up with that. And that's a part of our conversion um, in some ways. And, And so the issues in the gospel topic essays, I think, become more normalized over time. But but when they all come at you at once and they come at you in a context of these are real issues and they've caused me to reevaluate whether I can believe and stay within the church, then it is very threatening to a believing member. Mm -hmm. So I I think the the advice I would give is legitimize the concern for the other person. You don't have to understand it completely and you don't have to um, kind of match their knowledge on it. Mm -hmm. Um, but as you feel comfortable um, uh, then you can you know gradually or more quickly or immediately you know try and understand that issue and and I think that a part of give and take in a relationship is to honor both parties as you go through this Mm -hmm. you know the one person that's got a concern and saying okay I may not completely understand this but I know you're a good person and I know you're trying to understand. And so I, I, I accept that it's really important and real for you. Um, and I'm just not ready yet to kind of go down that road, be patient with me. And so I think that's what makes effective relationships when we can understand each other's viewpoints. And that may be hard with a, a spouse that's going through a deconstruction of faith, mm. um, because they there's so much emotion associated with that. Um, and in the book, I, I hope I give some tips and tools to be able to do that you know we don't label we we, we don't um uh, blame you know we don't say well the reason you're doing this is because you haven't been faithful or because you're you didn't go to the temple enough or you need to read your scriptures more or, or whatever but um um you know as we um kind of accept the reality of what they're going through and and, and being trusting in their goodness. Um, I I think it builds a bridge that allows you to remain connected and close together without it being threatening to either. In time, in time, that's happened. Yeah, that's happened with us. That's happened with us. us It took a lot of
0: time. Took time. It took maturity. I think on both on both sides to be able to say, on my side, I just didn't over time. I felt like it's not important to me anymore to thrust this new information on on you, Katie, anymore. And so that need kind of died down. It, it, it also died down because I wasn't consuming it anymore. Uh, but that, that period of time, man, when you're going through stuff six to eight hours a day, within a week, you're, you're a full-time job, 40 hours worth of research beyond what your spouse knows. And that chasm is, is wide very quickly and you get home and I just, Katie, I just listened to this podcast. Did you know blah, 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 Or Katie, I just read this article. Did you know blah, 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 And even if you're not trying to sound threatening, it can come off as like, oh my gosh, can you just watch a baseball game? Let's stop talking about this.
2: So, okay. So we've been through this for, I mean, we're going on three years now.
0: And we say that like we're, the total experts. We're
2: not the total experts. <laughs> I, I'm just giving it a frame from a reference. Yeah. Um, we're going on three years. And because we have been patient, opened up, I've listened to his concerns. I've read some of the stuff he's read. I've listened to the podcasts he's listened to. Um, I would be lying if I didn't say that I, I was more nuanced right? I realize and recognize some of the issues in the church. And um, I've, I've become a little bit nuanced. And, um, and in the book, you talk about a truth cart, and you bring you bring that up. And um, so I wanted you to maybe address what truth cart is, and you know, what it means and, and how, when I read about it, I, I couldn't, help, but think like, it sounds, this sounds like a cafeteria Mormon. So is there a difference between the two and what is the difference?
1: Well, you know, I, I'm not sure I know the answers to those completely, but let's start with what is a truth card. I didn't invent this. This is um, a construct from Patrick Mason, if I recall right. Mm -hmm. And he, he says that, you know, um, there's, there's some things that we think we have to believe in order to be able to be faithful members of the church. Um, you know, do you have to believe that, um, Job is a literal person? Do you have to believe that Jonah was swallowed by the whale? Do you have to believe? And those are pretty simple. And I start out with those because, yeah. you know, everyone can say, well, you know, I, I get that parts of the old Testament, um, might, uh, not be completely literal, mm-hmm. um, Do you have to believe that there's a global flood? Um, Do you have to believe that uh, the earth is 6,000 years old? You know, uh, and some of those things don't really um, matter when we talk about um, how to become a better person, how to become more Christ-like, how to make and keep covenants. And so um, uh, I think sometimes we have so much in our truth cart that we end up having to defend everything and when something falls apart, um, then everything falls apart.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: if, if in our truth cart we have a claim, for example, that prophets have never made a mistake, and and that you know, when I say it like that, that seems kind of ridiculous that we would believe that. We we know that they are human and um, uh, are, are subject to human limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if, if we kind of still believe that in the fabric and then find something where um, we, we, you know, with the best evidence, we think they might have made a mistake, then then the truth cart breaks and everything falls out. If if we, you know, can't, if we're so brittle about a particular view that, that if it is challenged, then everything comes apart. So, you know, people have to decide what's in their truth cart. Um, for me, there are things like... Um, uh, Jesus Christ, um, heavenly parents, uh, a plan of salvation, um, and uh, um, a life after death of um, the love that comes from heavenly parents. That's uh, embodied in a, a redemptive plan that allows us to to be healed and made complete, uh, free from sin, um, free from the limitations that this life places on us. And to me. Those are the powerful things in the truth card.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you
1: start kind of looking at things like that, Job being a literal person, I mean, who gives a mm-hmm. Um, But I can read the story and I can learn things mm-hmm. um, about my relationship to Christ or mm-hmm. my responsibility to comfort other people. Job's actually really a good story because, you know, there's kind of a faith crisis going on in the story of Job, right? And his yeah. friends, friends start blaming him for you know all the bad things that are happening into his life because clearly he was either offended, lazy, or wanted to sin.
0: That, was a good that answer your question. Not so,
2: yeah, no, well, but do you? I mean, you've heard the term "cafeteria Mormon." Yeah. Do you, do you feel like that's just our modern day way of saying that?
1: No, I, I don't. I think that's, um, I think Cafeteria Mormon is, is a little bit different. I think that's kind of, I pick and choose, um, um, well, you know, maybe it is the same. Okay. Uh, I suppose everyone uses it a little bit differently than, yeah. than yeah. so it, it's, it's probably hard to pin down a perfect definition on it. Um, I, I think part of the gospel that is important um, is that we do take responsibility for our own faith and that we do own it, and that we do decide what is important to us and act on that. I suppose some people could call that being cafeteria Mormon. Um, I think uh, at the heart of it is that um, uh, um, I think we're safe if our our earnest efforts are uh, to become Christlike. Our, our earnest efforts are to um, understand the love of our heavenly parents. Um, and to respond to it in kind to those people around us. Um, I, I think that 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 is uh, at the heart of it. And uh, at times we um, uh, can, can um, get distracted by things that um, kind of keep us from that central uh, focus in our lives. So I think it's okay to shed some of those things, whether it's Job or, um, you know, perhaps uh, even maybe different ways in which we uh, participate in church.
2: Yeah. I love that.
0: Um, The first thing that you just mentioned in the truth card, in your summary there was uh, focusing on being Christ-like. Do you have any thoughts on, um, do you have any thoughts on someone that does not believe in the divinity of Christ but still believes in using uh, Christ or can use Christ as a similar or as a common language, something that uh, if I can model my life around the, 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 the narrative that I have learned of what it means to be Christ-like, uh, that's how I want to shape my life. Even if I don't necessarily believe in the divinity of Christ any thoughts on that approach or did you talk to anyone in the preparation of your book about that topic at all?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm aware of, um, uh, you know, that there's, um, some folks that have lost belief in a historical Christ. Um, and, um, they still uh, choose to participate in one way or another because they treat Christ as a concept. Um, and that concept is, uh, uh, is embodied in the ministry of Christ, where Christ um, sees suffering, uh, he sees otherness, he sees disease, um, and he chooses to heal and unite and uh, bring people together. He, he challenges unfairness. Um, and I, I do know people that uh, take that view of Christ as a concept and embody that in their life. I, I think that's wonderful. I also know people that that um, believe in a historical Christ and don't embody those kinds of things. Right? <laughs> right <it can> go <laughs> yeah, I can. So I, I, um, I um, everything um, that uh, is embodied either in the historical Jesus or in the concept of of Jesus. Uh, that we apply into our lives makes us better people and makes um, uh, those around us um, uh, 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 blessed. So uh, I, I would hope that people who have have lost, have left the faith, if you will, um, retain that concept, even if they don't retain the specific belief. Um, I, I think that's a fundamental issue in the truth Cart. Um, but I can understand people that uh, they can't uh, get there, um, and they they still want to participate in goodness and maybe even formally in church because they find in the church community an opportunity to express that ideal.
0: Thank you for saying that. I think this is really important because David, you know, we talk to hundreds of couples and some of the more painful ones are the, the emails or messages that we get are centered around not all of them. And this isn't the most common issue, but many of them are centered around, um, he doesn't even believe in God or Christ anymore. And what you just explained, um, and I'm not, I don't want to interpret your answer as it's okay not to believe in Christ because I know that's a very core part of your, um, value system and your beliefs is, is Christ divinity. Uh, but allowing for space of I can, I can live a Christ-centered life even if I'm not on the 100% belief in Christ and in the traditional LDS narrative, if that makes
1: sense. Yeah, one one area we, we didn't talk about in terms of my own personal story is I, I do have um, adult children that um, uh, don't believe and don't hold traditional Latter-day Saint beliefs. And um, uh, I'm really proud of them. Um, not because they don't believe like I do, but because they still model in their lives that goodness. And it's important to them to have um, uh, the ideals that are embodied in Christ um, in their lives. And it, it's actually interesting. Um, um, they actually have taught me things about Christ. Um, it's interesting when you step away from something, um, and and start into new beliefs. Um, there are things that I have been able to learn from them about my own beliefs, mm. um, and and so I I think as they stepped away and initially I was kind of afraid, uh, you know, maybe in a different way than you're describing, Katie, is is kind of asking them the questions. Um, but but as I've asked them the questions, I've I've learned things from them that are good and wonderful uh, that have made me a better Latter-day Saint uh, and have to some extent shaped um, ways in which I use church doctrine to, uh, and behavior to bless my life and those lives around me. So uh, I'd love for them to be sitting next to me on a pew on Sunday, um, but I'm grateful um, for the goodness that they found in their lives and and the way in which they touch other people's lives because of that, I think that is whether you call it christ like or not you know that's that's goodness
2: yeah um so I love that, especially because a lot of people at least i mean it sounds like you have kids that are our age, so <laughs> you pretend you're 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 the dad you're our dad, and you know we hear so many. I mean hundreds of families who whose parents just react um really well and actually really horribly and are are very harsh towards um the person going through the crisis of faith how um you know for any of the parents out there who are listening whose son or daughter um Uh, how how can they they be supportive to their, you know, you're talking towards the end of the book about ministering. How can a parent be supportive to their child? How have you been able to find that balance between your faith and your children?
1: You know, I I really like the word ministering, not because it's a new church program. I hope it's not a church program, but because (laughs) what the word really means is very powerful and pastoral. You know, ministering requires a deep understanding of people's needs. And because of that understanding, we're able to uh, provide comfort and love and the things that they need. Right. And we in the church do that pretty well in some context when there's, you know, just before this meeting, for example, I got a sign up genius from my elders quorum president saying, we need to do a move on Saturday. Can you you do it? And so I sign up and, you know, you know, there's a need and you, you respond to it and it's easy to do. It's not easy. You know, I'm old and my bones aren't, don't work quite as well as they used to, but you know, I still can do a little bit. And, um, we'd love that. Um, it's harder for us when it gets to issues of differences of faith on knowing how to minister. Um, and, and, you know, parents, um, um, my counsel with them would be to take that word and really understand what it means and to gain a deep understanding of, uh, of of your, your adult child. Primarily I'm talking about adult child children in the book Um, and uh, reach out to them in a way that gives you understanding and allows you to comfort and love them and to mourn with them. You know, there's something that I really was surprised about with the research is how painful it is for someone to go through a faith crisis and ultimately uh, leave belief behind. Um, you know, it's a it's a part of their life, and it's it's like it's gone now, and it 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 needs to be mourned. Um, it certainly is felt that way as a loss, and um, you know, it, and it's traumatic. And um, I think parents need to be less concerned about. Kind of the eternal complications of that, or the eternal kind of doctrinal implications of that, and more concerned with the here and the now, and how do I put my arm around a child who's, you know, struggling to believe or has deep philosophical disagreements with church uh, a doctrine or policy, and 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 how can I show the kind of love that the Savior had when I can't quite remember the story, but it's. Uh, you know the Savior says to someone, "Do do you believe?" And he says, "Yea, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief." And and you know the Lord was able to minister to someone who didn't have belief. And I I think we can do the same. That sounded really preachy, didn't it? Oh, I liked it.
2: No, it's perfect. It it makes me, yeah. It I just reflect so much on you know those who are listening and the stories we've heard. And I just hope that. <laughs> There are parents out there listening to this, and that will read the book because um, I felt very encouraged after I read your book and it gives me a lot of hope for the future um, in the church, but i like I feel like it sheds a light on um, a topic that is is just not really talked about in our in our congregations and at church and that can be a really hard thing. And it's a lonely place, not only for those who go, who go through the crisis, but it's a, it's a very lonely place for people like me, you know? uh, I mean, we've talked about our story before, but, um, I, I felt so, so much pain and loneliness, not knowing who to turn to, not knowing who could empathize with me, not knowing, um, having, you know, feeling like I had this giant secret on my chest that I couldn't share with anyone. And, you know, I I feel like so many of our listeners, um, are in that position where they're just the supporting role and, and they have no idea how to navigate that. And so, um, your words bring a lot of comfort and not only I can see from the parents point of view, but, uh, for the spouse as well.
1: We should have had a chapter in the book about, um, you know, implications in a marriage on this. I, I didn't, it didn't come up as an overriding theme, but, yeah. but it is there. Yeah. Um, and, and I appreciate being introduced to you two to understand some of those complexities and how you've navigated that. And, and maybe you two need to write that chapter of, <laughs> of <laughs> the second
0: edition for the second, yeah, ed- the second edition <laughs> here. Um, you know, I, this is uh what you just said katie is uh is big, and we you and I have talked i don't think on camera about this before, but a part in in that chapter would be i think there's a wake up call uh with mixed faith marriage uh to the church in how how it's handled at the local level um and not to say and i'm not implying that our local leaders have done anything wrong as they haven't they've, they've been, been they've been phenomenal yeah uh but what we have seen from a number of our, our listeners is if one of the spouses, if the spouse that remains, quote, in the church, uh, they, the, the way that Sundays go currently, and that's, that is not at all part of someone's participation in the church, but it's a huge part of someone's participation in the church, pretty quickly, they feel like they don't fit anymore. Not, and they haven't shifted any belief whatsoever. Sometimes they haven't read anything or learned anything and they don't feel the same way, but, and what a, what an isolating feeling for that spouse to feel like I don't belong anymore. And maybe they don't agree with some of the things that are being said about their spouse or people in the same position as their spouse. So a lot of the times where both spouses end up leaving, it, it abs- actually doesn't it doesn't have to do with the 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 trailing spouse <laughs> um, shifting their beliefs. It's this. It's this. I don't belong here anymore. I don't fit the 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 nuclear family that that the church wants me to fit anymore, and it just becomes unbearable. That's not the case for everybody, uh, but that's something that um, if and I'd love to trans- transition into talking about that last, last section uh, in more detail about ministering, but. I think that's something that the church would benefit from um, incorporating a lot of the ideas in your ministering section is these mixed faith couples won't feel so isolated anymore. I truly can support Katie and I know this is a big monologue, but I truly can support Katie and her continued participation and, and belief in the church. I, I truly can. I've seen moments where it gets very difficult for her. Um,
2: I mean, father's day, I, we didn't go. I mean, Alan, I said, what do you want to do for Father's Day? And he didn't want to go to church, and I get it. I mean, that's not that's not how he wanted to spend his Father's Day. But, you know, all the kids are standing up in front singing to their dads. and
0: You didn't want to see that. So they can sing to me at home, right?
2: <laughs> I, mean, we, I think we ended up going the second hour, but it was just painful. It was too painful.
0: Yeah, it's tough.
1: I, I'd love for us at church to be able to to kind of remove that, that difficulty, maybe it's impossible. I'm kind of realistic about kind of the culture that exists there and how hard it is to kind of remove that. Um, one of the, one of the things that I felt with the, the research that I did was that a core reason for disaffiliation is for people feeling like they don't belong. And, um, that non belonging can come from so many different ways but what you've expressed Katie is right in there and um and um you know that that is actually an issue that I'm familiar with personally on that yeah. and um uh i i would love for us to find ways where um uh, the diversity that does exist in the church uh, mixed face marriages, divorce, mental illness, um, sexual orientation, um, race, culture, economics—I think we could go on for a long time on this list. Yeah. Where yeah. those differences uh, wash away, because when we when we think about Christ and His ministry, His ministry was all about removing otherness you know, there, there aren't others. We are all, um, uh, our heavenly parents' children. And I think that's what his ministry was all about was to help us understand that so that we could love God and our neighbor. And our neighbor was the Samaritan. Our neighbor was whoever that other person was. Um, you know, the woman with an issue of blood, the leper, um, the woman taken in adultery, you know, that, that's, that's what it means to minister is to mm-hmm. comprehend um, people and their real needs and to be able to see people like Katie that are trying to make it work and find ways so that she doesn't feel, I mean, if, if we don't, aren't able to have people feel like they belong to a religious community that preaches um, the beliefs that we have, then, then, then we as a, a church community have, have really failed. So
0: looking at, let's focus on Sunday attendance. We recently did seven episodes, um, four by us, three by Lindsay and Matt Care uh, on going back to church. So I hadn't gone for about eight months and I went back for four consecutive weeks and we kind of recorded our experience on that. Um, What, what do you, what does it, what does this look like? What you just explained, what does it look like? And I know that there's not some aha. Uh-huh. If everyone does these five steps in in the wards that uh, even the the lowliest of non-believers can feel comfortable, but let's brainstorm, let's solve the issue here live on Marriage and Type- a <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, What are some things that, what does that Sunday experience look like at church that would be easier for someone in my position or in Katie's position to feel more comfortable and like they belong?
1: Well, I think we have to acknowledge the diversity of belief within our congregations. Um, I suspect in your congregation and in my congregation that there are people that go to church and say, I don't think I believe this, you know, I and, and no one knows it. And they, they might be even sitting on the stand or they might be giving the church talk or teaching the lesson. And so I think we, just like you mentioned, Alan, that stake presidency member that spoke in a way that you knew, he knew Mm. um, about challenges of faith, I think we have to give those clues. I think we have to find ways um, formally to acknowledge that there is the diversity of belief and human experience in our congregation. And we do that by using diverse topics in our lessons and in our sacrament meetings. We use diverse speakers. Um, I, I would love for someone like you, if, if I were a bishop, I'd want to reach out to you and say, is there something you could say, um, in sacrament meeting? Um, um, and, and you know you don't have to testify about the divinity of Christ, but, um, uh, you know, is there some way to engage you in that so that even when you are fully acknowledging the level of belief you have that you feel like you can participate in the community, um, and and so I think we need to find more ways to be able to do that and to engage people. Maybe some people feel like if we do that, we you know are are diminishing kind of the spiritual power of the people participating because we have some people that are participating without full belief. But but I I think that's what the church is all about is is reaching people where they are and 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 finding ways that they can um, participate and help and, and bless other lives.
2: (sighs) (laughs) Now Alan's getting emotional.
1: (laughs) So
0: I, I kind of choked up when, when you said if, if I was in your congregation, you would, you would want to ask me to come up and, um, the, just the fact that you said that, uh, I don't know that I want that anymore, but I wanted that for a long time. And as soon as, and and I'm talking, I'm, you've heard similar stories, David, but I'm really talking to those that are newer uh, in this journey um, that have gone through a crisis of faith Um, because we've, I've been through it. Um, It was so, it is so isolating. It's so isolating as as soon as it's known that uh, sorry I shouldn't say it's like it's it happens in every every single person's experience, but in my experience as soon as it is <clears throat> is known the depths of of my crisis or disbelief uh i'm I'm no longer a safe person to have participate and <clears throat> um I would have loved to still participate. And now I think it's just too far gone it's, for local participation. At least it's just too far gone. If
1: you
2: know, It's too far gone because you feel like um, you're not in the headspace, space. Like you don't have the desire to do so, or because
0: you don't think that they would even ask you. I don't think they want it. I don't think that's what they want. That's, that's one thing um that when I read your book was actually a little difficult for me was I was reading it, especially that last section on ministering and, and it was a little disheartening to me because I thought, yeah, this would be amazing. This would be amazing, but I don't, I don't know if it's going to get there. And I don't know. It's, it couldn't, it can't come soon enough. (laughs) And I don't know. It's, it, it was, it was this odd mixture of, of this is amazing and Darn it, why couldn't this have been my experience?
1: Yeah, I, I hear you. And I, I um I don't know how wide the gap is and if it does close or how much time it closes. Um what what I if if you noticed in the book, I, I really didn't talk about global church issues. I really didn't talk about much right. of what happens in the church office building. I really talked about what happens in our wards and in our families. And uh, we have such wide opportunity to be able to make changes there that can make it easier. Not that we, um, and I, maybe our goal should be to try and retain people. I can't quite figure that out, but more than that, it's about loving people. Uh, it's about being with them. It's about, um, um, being open to the journey and the painfulness of what they probably are experiencing. Um, and I would hope we can get better at that. We're people. And so it's hard for us to do this and we react in all sorts of different ways, but I hope in time um, that that we can be better. Uh, and if we can be better, I think we're um, meaning if we're better at, trying to reach out to people like you, Alan, in the initial stages, or even where you are now, um, we become better people. Um, those that, you know, hold traditional views, we become better people because, um, uh, we all can learn from each other. And in that openness of, of ourselves, we, um, learn things about ourselves.
0: Mm. I think, um, what I love most and I don't think I've said that yet. So I know in in interviews you hate when I say my favorite part of the book was, and you say that eight times, (laughs) but I think what I love most is from my side of the fence, not that I'm trying to build a gap here, but um, is I truly don't feel like uh, you have any intention other than understanding and loving. And that approach is absolutely what, uh, what so many people in this situation that Katie and I find ourselves in just that's what we crave. We crave feeling like someone cares and understands and loves. And I'm not whining saying that nobody does because we've had a number of people in the ward exhibit those exact qualities, which has been phenomenal. But that, that is what we crave without any pretension of, Oh, they're just being a friend because they just want us to come back to church or they're just being nice because they were assigned to be nice or anything like that uh so that's the my favorite part of of the approach that you take is it truly is coming from a place of uh, I, my goal isn't to get you to come back or even to get you to stay if the, if you do and it's helpful for you great but i just want to understand what you're going through so i really appreciate that approach
1: well thank you
2: um Okay, David, so when are you going on your speaking tour? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well, we want to book can you we, in Murray, California. Can Utah. we um,
2: set you up with and invite all of our local leaders? And I'm, <laughs> and I'm half joking, half being serious, because I, I feel like, oh, all of this is just so. I want to buy uh, just a palette of books and give it away to all of my neighbors and friends and loved ones for Christmas, because I just feel like the, this conversation needs to happen and it needs to happen sooner rather than later. Um, what are you doing in your area now? What are you doing with your local leaders um, to help them understand and learn? And I mean, what can we do in our own homes and stakes?
1: Well, um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And I, um, you know, I'm really humbled that you would say what you are saying about the book. I, um, never expected to write a book. I never expected to write a good book. Um, um, but I'm, I'm really grateful that it has touched you. And I know it's touched others because they've reached out to me and expressed that. And, um, I think that, um, we are better at, um, embracing these kinds of concepts when we're in the middle of a situation where the needs are apparent. Mm-hmm. And I, I think sometimes um, the problem of, of if it's a problem, let's not call it a problem, that sometimes because the current issues of disaffiliation um, don't slap us in the face all the time, we don't think about this as a problem. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't know what we could do. So many of the people that uh, have a faith crisis won't disclose where they are for the very reasons, Alan, you mentioned. It changes everything once you disclose it. might even affect your job, yeah. affect your friends, your family relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, your wife might get released from a calling just because you as a husband, yeah. you know, um, are struggling with faith. And so we have all these people that are, I don't know how many, but I know that there's lots that are kind of silently going through this process. And, um, so I would hope that, um, that leaders can feel comfortable that number one, they need to address it. And number two, that they can address it. Um, I, I was really humbled by, um, Uh, an endorsement that uh, Patrick Mason, who wrote the book Planted, which is really a great book here, Mm -hmm. he he said that this book needs to be, I think he said something like, a dog-eared copy needs to be in the home of every ward council member. And uh, I would hope that it does permeate those kinds of discussions. I don't claim to have all the answers. I hope I provoke enough So the leaders, I'm not one of these leaders, you know, I'm not a bishop, I'm not a stake president, but I hope that the words that I put forward here will provoke them to think deeply about this and to come up with ideas and solutions and their wards and stakes that, um, do respond to the needs that I think they know are there, but probably just don't know how to address it. Um, so am I doing a speaking tour? Uh, not really. I have grandkids, um, but you know, I, I'm happy to help out in, in any way that could be there. Um, I do operate a Facebook group for parents oh, whose, whose children, uh, who is adult children, um, no longer are believers. Uh, and and the issues that you described previously are felt there very much by parents. They feel perhaps like their whole eternal future is is some sort of sad heaven, as you you know that term. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I'm I'm hopeful that there are, are ways that I can contribute. But I think most of the work is going to happen kind of in these interpersonal situations where people talk to their spouse or talk to their parents or their leaders and introduce these ideas. And, you know, perhaps the book can be a part of that. As you mentioned, Katie, you know, having a leader read this um, could be helpful. I, I I know some people have said, you know, Bishop, if you want to minister to me around my faith crisis, you know, you need to read a book first. Um, And so I know that there's some of that that goes on and uh, but, but I'm hopeful that um, because of the overarching goodness of the people in the church, I've really found good people, Mm -hmm. that um, they will, um, uh, we will become better at this Mm -hmm. um, and our leaders will find ways to respond probably better than anything I've written about.
2: Mm. Well, we just so appreciate your work and your effort and, I mean, I I can feel it. I can feel how sincere you are. And I, I, I hope that comes across in this interview because I definitely feel it. And, you know, down the road one day, if you decide that you want to collaborate with us to help out our mixed faith marriages, we are plugged into that community really well. And that's something I think that um, would be so beneficial so that we don't lose some of these um, people like me who, who want to be supportive of their spouse, but who also still has um, a deep love and um, um, for their community and church. So,
1: Well, thank you. I, I'd love to do that. So, um, you know, maybe I'll get out to Salt Lake one of these days and we can <laughs> have a chat, Sounds figure great. it out.
2: Yeah,
0: that'd be great. Uh, you know what? Impromptu, Katie, I hope this is okay. We're going to give away three copies of the book five, five copies we're of the giving book. away
2: five copies of. so book. if
0: you would like a copy of bridges uh ministering to those who question uh send us an email at marriage on a tightrope at gmail.com and we will on our next episode now we can't announce who's going to win on the episode but we will let those know that win um that, maybe, through that you, or maybe, or maybe through instagram or facebook or yeah via email but if you would like to uh receive a copy of that book uh just send us an email and we
1: will First uh, five people. That you,
2: first five people. Right. And you can find the book where, David?
1: Well, it's um now just being made available at Deseret Book. So I'm excited about it. that. <laughs> I, I made it? the top
2: of the chain. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Amazon and then at Coford Books. Perfect. And um we're just finalizing the audio version of it.
2: Oh uh, nice.
1: So um I know my voice is kind of grating and I'm apologizing in advance for that audio version, but you get what you get. <laughs> and That's my voice.
0: Ah, it's not grating at all. No,
2: That'll be great.
0: That's great. Well, any, any parting words, we'll give you the last word to, uh, all of our listeners here on the tightrope.
1: I'd wish I could come up with something profound. I, I, um, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. My, my marriage is not on a tightrope. Um, um, but I really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, I know a number of people um, in this situation and everything I know about you and the way in which you're approaching these issues is just wonderful. So thank you for your work. And uh, uh, and, and let's figure out how to write that next chapter. Great.
0: <laughs> Sounds great. Well, this is big, one big kumbaya session. Yeah. David, should we sing? Closing song (laughs) or something? (laughs) What's the closing hymn? Uh, (laughs) Kumbaya. Kumbaya. That's that's the one. (laughs) David Osler, thank you so much for joining us here on Marriage on a Tightrope. This has been Alan and Katie. If you would like to contact us, you already know the email. You can also join us on Facebook at Marriage on a Tightrope and on Instagram by the same name.
2: Um, David, do you want to plug, do you have a Facebook group? Do you want to say that again?
1: What's the name of that Facebook group? Well, it's something like uh, Bridges uh, Support for LDS Parents whose Adult Children, something like that. I, I can put it in the notes. Great. And then awesome. there's a website that the book has called uh, BridgesLDS.com. Wonderful.
2: And if people want to contact you, how can they do that?
1: Um, on the um, – well, the, you know, I'll just give my email address. I don't, I'm going to read it anyway. You can, go to the, you can go to the website and do a, you know, message me, or you can do db, B as in boy, uh, Osler at gmail.com. O-S-T-L-E-R. Awesome.
0: David, thanks so much. Okay. Thank you, folks. We're going to see
2: that it was better that we grew up together. Tell me you don't want to leave Cause if change is what you need You can change right next to me When you're high I'll take the lows You can ebb and I can flow We'll take it slow And grow as we go Grow as we go